Okay, this morning we're going to continue our Effective Kingdom Prayer series, and we are on chapter 3 of that called Five Types of Prayer. And chapter 3 is going to have 3, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and now H. So uh, um, 3F is on spiritual warfare. If you, the series theme verses are your your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, James 5, 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And what we're saying in this series is that prayer can be more or less effective. And it's not a matter of learning a formula. It's a matter of a lifestyle and community and relationship with God together. But God wants to answer prayers in powerful ways. So... um, We've been looking at five types of prayer, which is in Roman numeral B, and we're now starting the fifth type of prayer, which is going to take three messages, and that is called spiritual warfare. Uh, I said last week that I thought intercession was was probably the most important type of prayer, and uh, in terms of of advancing the kingdom— uh, it, you know, it's kind of hard to say, obviously, reading the scripture as prayer and communing with God, worshiping and communing with God, they're all important. But I, I particularly thought that last, uh, last week's two messages were import, very, very important for us. If you did not hear both of them, or even if you did, I would re- and consider re-listening to them on the podcast, because intercession is kind of a posture of life. You will not become effective at leading people to Christ or discipling them, or maturing them. You won't become effective as a father. You won't become effective uh, in so many ways in the Christian life if you don't take on the position of an intercessor. Because an intercessor, first and foremost, identifies with the sin of God's people. We saw Nehemiah, uh, who was one of the most righteous people in the Bible, no particular sins recorded of his, and yet he says, we have sinned, and we have sinned, and so forth. So with that, the thought that intercessory prayer, in terms of, of what we do in a corporate prayer meeting or what we do in individual prayer being the most important, I want to submit that probably spiritual warfare is the second most important. Um, and so that's what, really why it, it uh, is going to take three messages. And uh, today we're going to look at the reality of spiritual warfare the geography of spiritual warfare, and the legalities of of the conflict. Now, uh, you will be getting a bulletin. We had all kinds of logistical problems this morning. Jason got backed up on 35 in a traffic jam. But in there will be an an insert, unless they have that already, the uh, Francis McNutt uh, first in the back page. Those are some excerpts from his book called Deliverance from Evil Spirits. Chapter 2 is basically on the reality of spiritual warfare. And he starts off by saying that 200 years ago, we wouldn't have had to discuss this. But since the Enlightenment, Western Christians, uh, we live in a culture and a climate where we're presupposed to anti-supernatural thinking. And so miracles, prophecies, casting out of demons, anything that has to do with real spiritual power and encounter, we are skeptical of, where, in fact, in many parts of the world, that is just a normal part of Christianity. And biblically, it's a part of normal Christianity. Now, one of the things that you have to always uh, keep in mind is 
what's normal is not necessarily what's popular or the majority or average. But in, in terms of Christian or biblical thinking, what's normative is what the Bible calls normative. And so let's start with looking at just the reality of spiritual warfare, because frankly, all of us have been brought up in climates where we underestimate how spiritual life is. That's just the truth. We miss gentle promptings of the Holy Spirit in our spirit all the time. Uh, we we uh, and we underevaluate the the nature of the fact that there's a demonic and satanic conflict all around us. They are putting uh, there are demons putting thoughts in your mind. Um, they are speaking to your heart. Uh, they are enticing you away from God. And we, as a Christian, you need to be aware of this. In fact, Paul, at the toward the conclusion of his great treatise of Romans, says in Romans sixteen twenty that as a result of everything I've said up till now, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Um, you're either going to crush Satan under your feet, or he's going to crush you. And there is no middle ground. You you can't just ignore him. And uh, if you're unaware of him. He's already crushing you. Uh, that's his first and great scheme is to, to hide in darkness. He is the prince of darkness. So uh, if you're not aware of, of Satan and his kingdom, uh, you can't really live the Christian life effectively. So let's get into this. Um, I want We're, we're going to look at this just from a biblical point of view. Uh, McNutt in his book has a third chapter which has to do with uh, proving, proving the reality and existence of demonic experience from who, uh, demonic beings and so forth from human experiences, whereas chapter two he focuses on the scriptures, uh, as we're, as we're going to do this morning. Number one, in the Old Testament, the name Satan means adversary, which we're going to, you're probably going to hear several times this morning. It means opponent. And he's the opponent of God and the opponent of humanity. And he, the, he, he is mentioned by name 15, in 15 passages of the Old Testament. Uh, and they are listed for you there. Uh, there are several, of course, in, in the, opening chapters of, the opening two chapters of Job, Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, 1 Chronicles 21 and 1. Now, Secondly, the account of Lucifer's fall is told in symbolic terms in, in at least two places in the Old Testament. One is Isaiah 14, and the other is Ezekiel 28. Study those out for yourself. Now, if you read, a, say, a very modern translation like the New English translation, and you look at the notes thereof, it'll say, well, gee, this passage is about the king of Tyre. Uh, or this passage is about the king of Babylon in Isaiah's case. It's the king of Tyre in Ezekiel's case. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is, is uh, in the Bible, the Bible uses word pictures and metaphors. It, when it's typing, talking about Abraham, he's a word picture of the father. And when he's talking about Isaac, he's a word picture of the son. But there really was a real Isaac and a real, and a real Abraham. So there really is a real king of Tyre, and there is a real king of Babylon. But many of the things that are said in these passages are beyond what could be said of any human being. 
And so, um, if you know, if you want to uh, look at the nature of the enemy and his schemes, uh, that would be another good place to start. Thirdly, uh, in the intertestament period, um, among the Jews, Jewish exorcists began to emerge. Now, if you study cultures of the world, the ancient cultures, it's a kind of an interesting thing that, of course, evolutionary ideas will say that man has been on the earth millions and millions of years, and then suddenly about 10,000 BC, there was this Stone Age, the Neolithic period or whatever, that supposedly existed, which there's very little to no evidence. There's some paintings in the cave in France that they've decided are 10,000 years old by their pre-existing dating and so forth. But in reality, around 3000 BC, uh, if the Bible's correct, uh, man was created somewhere between four and 5000 BC. And right around 3500 BC, civilizations begin to pop up in the earth, all over the earth. And they're very advanced. They have metallurgical skills. They have music. They have engineering and architectural feats that are amazing. And so, in some of the some of the feats of the Incas and and the, and so forth, some of the feats of the Egyptians architecturally have yet to be surpassed. So this idea that man was prim primitive and all this kind of stuff is basically assuming a, a kind of a worldview that there's actually not that much evidence for. And so uh, as that goes, when these civilizations appear, first in, in Samaria and Egypt and India and China and, and what is today Mexico and so forth, all of these civilizations have a belief in evil spirits and all of them have ways of doing dealing with evil spirits. But none of them were particularly effective until Jesus Christ came along. But in the 400 years between Malachi, which was written in 396 B.C., and, and the birth of Christ, which is probably 4 B.C., um, during that 392-year period, it became more and more common for, the, for Jewish exorcists to begin to cast out demons. Before the Jewish exorcist, though, the Jewish people believed in demons, and there are spirits mentioned in the Old Testament, although infrequently. For instance, in uh, 1 Kings 22, 22, and 23, it talks about a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets of Ahab. And actually, um, just like in Job and Zechariah, there are, there are these audiences with God where apparently Satan and evil spirits were allowed to be in the courtroom. And God says, who will go and entice Ahab into battle for me or so forth? And he says, uh, I will. This evil spirit says, I will go and be a, a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And so we see spirits uh, in, in the Old Testament. However, when Jesus comes on the scene, everything intensifies. And a lot of the reason that it intensifies is as simple as this. Uh, I walked through Mammoth Cave once and we saw bats. And the first thing you notice about bats is they hate to be exposed to the light. Satan is a prince of darkness. He's, uh, he wants to stay in unconfessed sins. He wants to stay in deception. He wants to stay in lies and so forth. He cannot stand the presence of the Holy Spirit 
the spirit of truth. And Jesus comes, is described in the Bible as, a, as, as a, the Messiah, of course, and lots of things he's described. But one of the ways he's described is the person upon whom the, that God put his Holy Spirit without measure. There's never been a person anointed of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was anointed of the Holy Spirit. You might think this or that, uh, God, man of God in, in our time or in other times, Elijah, Moses, some of these people come to mind, were men powerfully anointed of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. And when his presence came into situations, demons panicked. They were, they were afraid. So all of a sudden, when the New Testament arrives, we see this great intensifying of the clash between the kingdoms of darkness and the kingdoms of light. So much so that ever since then, the enemy has been working to try to, uh, to get us finally where it took uh, 1,800 years to get to, a, a culture of unbelief where he can go back into hiding again. So... Um, you know, I have several good relationships with Christian counselors that I respect or admire, but none of them believe in, in, in casting out demons as part of their therapy or so forth, when in fact, Jesus was constantly casting out demons. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, which of course, the Synoptic means seeing similar, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels, there are seven major accounts that really stand out of Jesus casting out demons, like the gathering demoniac, you know, uh, and so forth. However, what some people miss, and frankly, I missed as a young Christian, uh, and then all of a sudden it started standing out to me, there are many other places where it, it mentions in a g general way that Jesus cast out demons out of multitudes, out of many, out of everyone in the crowd. And in fact, Matthew uses that, that type of uh, scene as his transition between the various sections. So right, right after Jesus comes out of the wilderness in Matthew 4, anointed and full of the Holy Spirit, he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God. He begins to make disciples, and he begins to teach the people, but it wasn't a teaching of theory. It was a teaching of power encounters, whereby the people were healed and whereby he cast demons out of many. It wasn't just some abstract theoretical teaching where we agreed to the ideas of the Christian faith. It was full of power. And power to save and power to deliver. Uh, in fact... That is kind of the whole point of the gospel. We, you know, if we, uh, we talk about seven missing elements of the, of the biblical gospel compared to the American gospel, and I would say right to the forefront, you have to put that a gospel that doesn't heal, a gospel that doesn't deliver, a gospel that doesn't have dramatic clashes between light and darkness, whereby people are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. If, that's, if, if we don't have those kind of things happening, it's doubtful that we have the gospel in, at, at all. We certainly don't have it in a biblical, in any kind of biblically complete sense. Jesus means God saves, and when he saved, there were tangible deliverances from the power of sin and iniquity and from the power of demonic spirits. If you have not experienced uh, radical things like all of a sudden 
uh, drugs are gone and there's no desire to ever go back. Lust is gone or whatever. Uh, Paul Copp sitting in our audience. I remember when he got baptized in the Holy Spirit, he had this, uh, he kept saying, he testified in, in, at Rock Campus Fellowship in front of everyone. He testified to me several times. You know, boy, I don't, I don't even have any desire for the sins I used to like. They're, they're just gone. And, uh, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that always lasts forever because sometimes God, you know, we let the enemy back in our life. Sometimes God takes us through what's called the wilderness where we uh, have trouble attaining a flow of his spirit for a while, but so he can test us to see if we stay obedient in that dry place. But nevertheless, uh, deliverances from evil changes of heart, uh, being changed from one man to another. We have a better covenant than the Old Testament. Samuel told Saul that you, when, you, when you leave from me, you'll run into some sons of the prophets and they'll pray for you and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll be changed into another man. And we have a better covenant than that. And that, in fact, happened to Saul. And before his demise in 1 Samuel chapter 13, he did some incredibly wise things in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of 1 Samuel that no one could possibly have that kind of wisdom, courage, resolve, take action kind of temperament apart from the Holy Spirit. He did things that were transrational, not irrational, and supernatural. So uh, the idea... Uh, hits in the synoptic gospels that there are demon spirits and Jesus came uh, to set us free from them. At least 25% of his ministry was casting out demons. And he makes it very, very clear in John 13 and 14 and 15, 16 and many other places that he intends to be a model for his church to follow for all time. We're actually living in an interesting time where the Pope and the cardinals of the Catholic Church have put out a worldwide call to Catholics saying we do not have enough trained exorcists and we need more. And they've put out, they, they, this is something that they're making quite publicly known that they are encountering demonic spirits all over the world and they don't have enough people trained in the way Catholics go about casting out demons. Uh, and they're, they're asking people to become trained exorcists. Uh, Pope John Paul II is quoted in that, in that writing, 1972, saying, you know, Satan and his, and his minions are very real. They're very real. So, um, if you don't have, if you've come, grown up in a Christianity where you've never cast out a demon where you've never uh, uh, seen demons cast out or something like this, I would encourage you to ask God to, to open your eyes to the reality of what Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is. We see the same ministry in the book of Acts, so much so one of my favorite Bible passages is in Acts 19, where... Um, some Jewish exorcists had heard about Paul the Apostle and all the great success the, uh, the apostles were having in, in the deliverance ministry. And so these Jewish exorcists, who you know, exorcism means you are trained in the art of casting out demons, they decide they're going to try it the Christian way, although they're not Christians. 
So they say, we command you uh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. And the demons actually speak audibly out of the man's mouth and say, Jesus, we recognize, the Greek there meaning we acknowledge, we submit before his authority. And Paul, we know, which means heard about. And in other words, Paul was doing so much in that area that the demons had communicated with each other, be, be watch out for this guy Paul coming around. <laughs> and that actually happens. Satan most opposes uh, ministers who actually get involved in casting out demons. He tries to slander their character, keep people away from them, whatever. Satan does not want you getting discipled by people who actually cast out demons. Now, casting out demons during the height of the charismatic movement was pretty, pretty normal in the 60s and the 70s and kind of as the charismatic movement died with the rise of the mega churches in the 80s, it, it's kind of gone into a back closet. But there are still some very godly, educated people. Unfortunately, Derek Prince and Frank and Ida Mae Hammond, whose books we recommend, uh, have gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, but Fr Francis McNutt is actually still alive and still runs deliverance seminars all, all year round. People come from all over the country to learn from this former Catholic priest uh, who basically mixes Catholic and Protestant techniques of casting out demons in a very powerful and effective way with inner healing and in a number of things, uh, they come to learn. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't know what else to do to convince you that spiritual warfare is real, but there's more demonic activities going around than you think. I love when Elijah... Uh, it was Elijah or Elisha said that Elijah, uh, Elisha, I think is the one freaking out, says, open his eyes so he can see more are those that are with us than the, those that are with them. And there was, in fact, a great, uh, uh, what's the word, a great legion of angels that God had assigned to the situation. And there were more spiritual beings involved than there were human beings. So... Satanic angels, satanic demons, godly angels. I, I would venture to say, I, I would, uh, you, we won't know till we go to heaven, but uh, so and I don't know what kind of betting you can do in heaven, so I won't set a bet. But uh, I would venture to say that the majority of people in this room have had their lives saved by an angel, an, an angelic intervention more than one time. So... Uh, and, and sometimes they're just incredible stories. Um, so, uh, I think I want to tell one there. Uh, I had this whole CD put together of, of miracles and, um, that were verified as best as possible and so forth. There was a, a lady who got caught in a tornado and her van got picked up and she was spinning around and she was on her knees crying out to God, and she felt the Holy Spirit said, I have angels, you know, guarding this, uh, this van. Put it in park. She had a, so she actually got off her knees while she was swirling around in the tornado, put the, put the van in park, and then the tornado ended up setting her down in her front yard, facing the house, so close to the house that if she had left it in drive, she would have ran right into the house. Uh, you know, uh, many people questioned her in all kinds of ways to, to verify that uh, 
seems, it seems from every way you can think about it to be a true story. And, and there's thousands of things like this. You probably have some, hopefully, of your own. By the way, I want to encourage you when God does spiritual, supernatural things in your life to tell the whole church about it. First of all, submit it to Jason and see if he wants you to tell it to the whole church in, on a Friday night or a Sunday morning. But certainly tell one another about it in the course of your fellowship because all through the Bible's testimonies is a way to counteract. All of us are under the attack of our cultural unbeliefs. And there is more anti-supernatural unbelief in Western culture than any other culture of, of, of all time. And, uh, and all of us have been oppressed by this way more than we know. And we need to make it an intentional uh, aspect of our Christian life to journey into spiritual, practical, powerful encounters with the Lord. Tell testimonies to one another. That's really, really important. All right. So continuing through the Bible, we get into John's writings, John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. John 14, 30. I will not speak to you much more for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. We're going to look at titles of Satan in the second message. Ruler of this world is one of many titles he's given. And, uh, cons- uh, in, in John 16, 11, in the middle of the passage where Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Uh, he goes on to say the reason for ju- he's convicted of ju- he'll convict of judgment is because the ruler of this world has been judged. So three times in John's gospel, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Uh, in the Johannine writings in general, jo- John doesn't tell any accounts of casting out demons because he's focused on Jesus came to destroy all the power of Satan's kingdom. He's looking at it from a much more global, cosmic, eternal kingdom of heaven is here and now perspective. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So, you know, you get down to where, when with phrases like that from Jesus' own apostles and witnesses who walked to him, the testimonies of Jesus, you can't really say that you believe in Jesus if you don't believe in the things Jesus says and does. He came to destroy the works of the devil. If you don't believe that there's a personal devil, then you really actually don't believe in Jesus. You really don't. So, because Jesus was constantly talking about, so you basically believe Jesus had it all wrong. He was accommodating the psychological backwardness of his day or some nonsense like that. Um, Now, in the Bible, there are three types of evil beings. The first one is Satan himself. Satan means adversary, opponent, devil. I uh, mean, diabolos means slander. We're gonna, and frankly, those are the two major things you need to know about Satan. That one, he opposes the character of God, the purpose of God. In uh, the in the life of the church, in the life of individuals called to walk with Christ in His church. Secondly, um, there are fallen angels. By, uh, by the way, I meant to say the second aspect is the serpent of uh, the, 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 the diabolos, the slander. Saint, Satan's primary way of opposing God is to divide his kingdom. So to the degree God wants to use someone in your life, to that degree, you will have things like offenses, bitterness. We're going to talk more about offenses as we go on today. You'll have these kind of things rising up 
especially wherever God wants you to be. From the, the moment God uh, starts to reveal to you where he wants you to be with who he wants you to be, you will have powerful forces trying to get you out of there. And they will mostly do it by accusing the brethren in your heart. And we'll look at that in more detail in the second message. But offenses will come, as Jesus said. What you do with the offenses will make your or break your destiny. Fallen angels is the second type of being. They are referred to in the, the Bible as things like principalities, power, spiritual forces of wickedness, and heavenly places. We see uh, this in Daniel 9 when, when uh, the angel uh, Gabriel, uh, uh, is it Michael? Gabriel, appears to Daniel, and he says, O oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, from the first day you sought to, to seek uh, God about these things, I was dispatched to you, but the prince of the power of Persia withstood me for 21 days. Now, it's very clear that that's a satanic being, because if you remember in the account of David, when he was being judged by the Lord for counting Israel and so forth, and he had three choices, an angel was about to wipe out Jerusalem with one blast of his sword, and that angel wasn't even as powerful as Gabriel. There's no way any human being withstood the angel Gabriel for 21 seconds, let alone 21 days. And a human being could not oppose an angel like Gabriel for even 21 milliseconds. Uh, they're just they're, that just wouldn't happen. That'd be a little bit like uh, a runner breaking the tape. You know, there, there's you know, it's a juggernaut versus nothing in terms of spiritual power. So uh, lastly, there's demonic spirits, and it's important to know a little bit about demonic spirits. They are disembodied personalities. So demonic spirits, we, the Bible doesn't give us where they came from. There's all kind of theories, like a pre-Adamic race. I don't buy that one. I don't know where they came from. Uh, God allows them in his sovereignty according to his purpose because you need to overcome them for the sake of your growth and so forth. If you don't have sort of a, uh, a militant aspect of your building character, if you ha haven't had a violent men enter the kingdom by force, if you haven't had to take uh, an offense or something that's holding you back and, ha and just bust through it and go do the right thing and get reconciled with the person and and humble yourself and and so forth then you then you'll never have character you we need these things we need we need temptations we need uh accusations against us we need uh offenses that hurt our feelings they are god's love gifts to you we need people to treat you badly you'll never become christ-like until someone spits in your face and pulls your beard out and you say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do because you've developed the character. One, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you hold back from spiritual authority or things like that because you're afraid and so forth, you'll never become the, the ninja warrior that God wants you to become in his kingdom, wielding the sword of the spirit that he, you, because you just won't have the intestinal fortitude to do so. You need trouble with a capital T. The Bible says that in so many ways. And that's one that's why God allows demons. There are demons and they do tempt you. And they come they actually strategize, talk among one another. 
Uh, demon spirits, for instance, are why they, there's a thing called gaydar, where homosexual people claim they can, they can know each other from over 100 feet away. That's why if you, uh, uh, if you uh, get, uh, go to a party uh, with heterosexual people, two codependent people will be the ones that go home together. It's why people who are not very healthy are attracted to unhealthy people of the opposite sex, uh, which is why you could do yourself a great favor and don't even get, go courting till you get spiritually healthy. Because out of your spiritual hell, your spirit will be attracted to someone else that's spiritually healthy. Demon spirits are real and they're, and they're active all the time, way more than you recognize. They put unbelief in your mind. They put doubts in your mind. They put accusations against whoever God has sent to help you get saved and get liberated. And they are, ho they are holding more people back than you, than you could ever imagine. In James uh, 2.19, he says, Do you believe in God? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or tremble. And trembling is a, is a personality trait. Being afraid uh, in Acts 19, 13, the, uh, the, the story I already quoted about the seven sons of Sceva, the demons speak out of the guy's mouth and they have, they have personality traits. They say, Jesus, we acknowledge, we, we recognize his authority. We're actually scared of it. Paul, we've all been talking about him. The news about Paul got here weeks ago. There was all kind of demons warned us that he was coming. But I don't know who the heck you guys are. <laughs> and, and then he beats him up. <laughs> uh, it's good to know who you know before you get involved in deliverance. But I, I would encourage you not to be scared of deliverance, but I'd encourage you to, to find out some things about it. I have seen amazing things. I, I have studied a lot of counseling from the three major schools of Christian counseling. And 90% of what I do in discipleship is, is counseling. But I will tell you this. One of the things I'm always working toward is preparing people for a deliverance session because when they're ready and they understand what's going on and so forth, I basically get uh, three years' results of counseling in, in about an hour. And... Uh, um, I wish, you know, some, and talk to some people in our church, uh, Leah Gray, for instance, who, uh, who uh, I think the world of Leah Gray and, and John Gray and how they've grown and developed and all the things they faced. Uh, but many of the things that she had made progress in were solidified the day we took her through a, a, a massive deliverance session with inner healing and and you know, renouncing of this and forgiving of that person publicly and out loud and, and so forth. And it's just been amazing the transition in her spirit since then. She had laid the groundwork more thoroughly than anybody I've taken through deliverance in years. It was easy ministering deliverance to her because she had prepared for every book that we asked her to read, every, you know, uh, list we asked her to make and she was so prepared and she had worked on these things and memorized scriptures about them that it was just a piece of cake setting her free and uh, seeing these things be permanently changed in her character if anyone's in Christ they're a new creation and God wants to make that more than theory he wants to make that experiential reality 
You know, it's, it's amazing to me how many Christians I meet that uh, you basically still sense a spirit of this or that, fears, uh, bitterness. So, so I, I meet Christians who aren't even that particularly loving or friendly. And uh, I, I go, what in the world? Um, don't let believe in evil spirits and study about them. And if you have problems with them, get the get help and get delivered. You'll you know. Now, again, we live in challenging times. The post uh, uh, post enlightenment period in the West. Let's turn the page over and uh, talk about the geography of spiritual warfare. I'm only going to be able to touch on these lightly. You can read the scriptures yourself. Number one is that that, um, demons or satanic angels and principalities are in the heavenly places. So part of how we pray is to bind spiritual forces of wickedness. They're over countries. They're over regions. They're over cities. Uh, they're over neighborhoods, and they're over families. In fact, the whole thing of a familiar spirit, when they do those shows where they cross over and so forth, and they because the demonic spirits that were involved in your family know you so well they can impersonate you, and in the next generation, uh, they can actually reveal things. The Bible shows that in the Old Testament, by the way, in the case of Saul. And uh, you, you need to know that because that's, that's really what is behind uh, the, whole I, the whole things with reincarnation and ancestor worship and, and necromancy and talking to the dead and so forth, that you're not actually talking to some dead relative. You're talking to the demonic spirits that were involved with that dead relative. And, they're, and you're giving them a legal right to start to destroy your life. Because the, the kingdom of God, uh, we'll pick it up in the next message. Uh, we're not going to finish this one. Uh, the kingdom of God is, is all about legalities. And if you give demons legal rights to you, if you have harbor unforgiveness or bitterness, you're, you're basically handing the, the demons a title uh, deed to say, come in my house. We're going to look at that more in the second message if we get that far. Uh, they are over geographical areas. We already mentioned that. They are over the mindsets of men. Certain cultures have certain mindsets that are demonic. And the, our, we, our weapons of our warfare are not according to the flesh. We have uh, weapons that are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. And we break down every lofty thing that rises against the knowledge of God. There are all kind of isms in people's minds and hearts, communisms, materialisms, evolution. There are all kinds of unbelief and false ideas that are in people's hearts and their minds. And these things are not uh, just, you can't just win this on the battle of the of theory. Uh, I wish God will re- begin to restore the Christian intellectual heritage of the centuries and the, the great apologists of the second and third century who took on the the Greco-Roman philosophical system and, and exposed its fallacies in Christ and so forth. And God bless uh, all the great apologists of our days, the Ravi Zacharias's, the Craig Lane's, the, you know, the N.T. Wright's and, and all that. But we need, and we need much more of them. But it's that and the power of the Holy Spirit that breaks the strongholds by doing actual battle against their names in the sphere that you're called to 
branch out. We don't just do spiritual warfare all over the world. If, if you're going to pray against uh, spiritual, spirits of wickedness and say like ISIS or something, I believe in doing that and binding that. But here's what I do because of, of what the scripture says about the Lord, that even, even Michael didn't rebuke Satan and he said, the Lord rebuke you. Here's what I say if I'm doing like international spiritual warfare. Lord, I, I join my voice with all the other Christians in, in your kingdom worldwide that, have, that are united in Christ in binding these spirits that are in so forth. I don't just like go in there like I'm Luke Skywalker and, or a Ninja Turtle or something and so forth because I just get knocked around. And I've been knocked around too much, God knows. Uh, but when we're, when we're praying for Wright Brothers School, when we're praying for these neighborhoods, when we're praying for this new ministry we're starting for married couples, when we uh, are praying for the right state ministry, yes, you need to be binding satanic spirits over those campuses. Now, even then, you need to do it in concert with your other brothers and sisters. You need to do it with a radical commitment to confessing your sins and walking in the light uh, so Satan can't take you out by some area you're, you're afraid to work with. But, but spiritual, actually commanding uh, angelic spirits to be bound in the name of Jesus is part of what we must do if we're going to proclaim the gospel effectively in our t targeted ministry areas. And I say that especially to those brothers who keep the prayer meetings going and so forth, because, uh, and sisters, you know, if you've never been to a prayer meeting with Catherine, you, you're missing a great thrill. Uh, <laughs> she, when she gets stirred up, it's like, whoa, <laughs> just staying out of the way. And uh, I wouldn't want to be a, uh, on the wrong team there. Um, so... You, we need to do these. You know, frankly, pr prayer is basically the air support for the infantry, sold, infantry soldiers that are going out to disciple and evangelize. I've actually got certain guys that I talk to behind the scenes and say, please, would you fast for me once a week? And would you pray? Would you pray? Would you? Because, you know, I need air support. I'm, I'm having Bible studies with people whose minds are full of all kinds of demonic ideas who have anger management issues, lust issues, unbelief issues. They can't stand me and they think I'm too pushy and, and all, all kind of things that are keeping them back from, their, from God's purpose for their destiny. And I need helpers that will pray through that and do the spiritual warfare. And so does every uh, person who, uh, Leah Gray needs that. John Weiss needs that. Jason Hale needs that for his for on on Tuesday nights. He's introducing Christ. There were 36 people there this year or this week. Uh, and I think uh, 12 of them were first time we met them. And believe me, there's a clash of kingdoms going on in their head to get them out of there. So, we'll end uh we'll end there. Uh I, and we'll pick it up there at the same spot in uh, meeting number two. It's, uh, is it next week or the week after that that you're coming back?